1: Meg. Uh, I just want to give a brief word of introduction to Brother Dave. Uh, as you know, this is our fourth installment of what a healthy church looks like. We've been through three so far. Uh, Nelson preached on a snowy day in January about the need for biblical preaching, why that's important. Second, uh, Nathaniel preached in uh, February on the importance of understanding why you believe what you believe, uh, biblical theology. Uh, Last month, Brian Owens preached the fastest, most accurate sermon I think I've ever been a part of. (laughs) And it was depthful, it was applicable, and uh, it was lovable too. So thank you for preaching, brother, last month about the gospel. Today, Dave is bringing you a message about conversion. And uh, I just want to remind you that these things you say, Darren, I know this, but guys, let me as pastor remind you that Getting these things right is not just something we do to be that church. This is what the Bible says we have to have down. And how many churches do not have these things. And and, and not that we're better than anyone else, but praise God that we are headed in a way uh, by His grace, hopefully, that we see that it is necessary for these things. You know, Peter reminded us, he said, I intend to remind you always that though you are established in the truth, but I think it right to stir you up by way of reminder. Be reminded today for the first time or the millionth time that God is in control. Dave, without any further ado. And I told him, he said, how long do I have to preach? I said, 40 minutes. So if he goes over 40, you can stop him anytime. So it's good. Brother Dave, come on up. Take your time.
0: First of all, I want to thank Gilbert for that hymn, Lord, I Need You. Uh, (laughs) That was an appropriate hymn for me. Uh, Also, I, I, I know Brian did go through his rather quickly last time, and uh, as I understand it, there are carryover minutes. Is that the way that works? Uh, (laughs) Maybe not. Uh, Well, good morning. And the fourth mark of a healthy church that we're going to talk about today is conversion. And as Pastor mentioned, so far we've looked at expositional preaching, biblical theology, and the gospel. Um, I want to confess at the outset uh, that I'll make some statements today that Uh, aren't mine. Uh, They're not my original thoughts. Uh, I love listening to good radio Bible preachers. And so if you hear something that says, yeah, I think I heard John MacArthur say that, or Adrian Rogers, or some other good godly man, Pastor Darren, yeah, I I plagiarized it from them. Uh, I had an original thought once, and it died of loneliness. Uh, (laughs) At any rate, if I fail to give credit where credit's due, I uh, just assume that it came from a good source and hopefully the best source, which is Scripture. Uh, Conversion. Conversion is about change, and Pastor mentioned that with respect to the little church up there and our church here, and I wanted to find some insightful quote about change so everybody knows what a techie I am. Uh, uh, But I did. I I Googled uh, quotes about change. And I, I, the first hit got 5,563 quotes about change. No, I'm not going to read them. <laughs> this is church. We're talking about change within the church. And so what should our attitude be about change as churchgoers, if you want to call it that? I think churchgoers aren't very receptive to change, by and large, uh, and anyone who's a attended a church meeting, has heard that profound doctrinal statement, we ain't never done it that way before. Uh, There's not a lot of tolerance for change, and those that I oppose change, I have to admit, they they do have a biblical basis for opposing change. They point to Malachi 3.6, which says, For I, the Lord, do not change. And then they point to Ephesians 5.1, which says, Therefore, be imitators of God. It's all about context, right, Nathaniel? Uh, All right. The change we'll look at today is personal change as believers, not changing the color of the carpet or putting drapes up or any of that sort of thing. Um, We're talking about changes uh, to us internally, changes uh, that are not superficial changes. They're changes in our thinking in our attitude, in our view of the world, in our view of ourselves, our view of others. Uh, It's about a change that's needed in our heart. The need for change really stood out when Leah and I were teaching junior camp one summer. And we had all these little kids, and and, uh, all week long we taught about the characteristics of God, His traits. And we spent a day... on his omnipresence, the fact that he's everywhere, that there's no place we can be that he isn't. And we spent a day on his omniscience, the fact that he's all-knowing, that there's nothing that he doesn't know about us and that nothing escapes him. Then we spoke about his omnipotence, uh, that he's all-powerful, that nothing's too hard for him, that nothing can overpower him. We spent a day talking about the fact that he's immutable. That's a big word for those little kids. Uh, But the fact that he doesn't change, just as the verse in Malachi that I just read to you says, he doesn't change. Uh, The fifth day was the important day from our perspective. I mean, they were all important. But we got to the fact that he's holy. And we read from Isaiah 6 how the Lord is sitting on his throne, high and lifted up, and how the seraphim cried out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is full of his glory. We explored what holiness meant with those children, and we talked about perfection and sinlessness and uh, being without blemish, without any flaw, and we talked about how that holiness was evident in God's character, in his name, in his works, and in his words, that his holiness is incomparable. And after speaking of his holiness, we lowered our voices, (coughs) and we said to the children, you know what's frightening, even terrifying about God's holiness? And for a moment, (laughs) we had their attention, (laughs) and their eyes got big, and we said, God's holy, and we aren't. Right there ought to be our motive for change. God is holy, and we aren't. All the other characteristics of God up to that point for these little children had been just kind of like superpowers. You know, they they all liked that idea of being everywhere and knowing everything and having all the power and so forth. But this one, now holiness came into the picture, and it really got their attention because they'd been taught that week the same thing we've been taught, that from Romans 3.10, there are none righteous, none. No, not one. They had that reaffirmed in Romans 3.23 by the revelation that all have sinned and all have come short of the glory of God. The unavoidable conclusion for these children and for us is that an omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, immutable, and holy God exists and we're in trouble. As Isaiah said in Isaiah 6, Woe is me, for I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. There's nothing that will escape this God's knowledge. There's no place we can hide from him. There's no way to fend him off and his judgment. And he's never going to change his mind. If we didn't understand it before, my wife and I, We got it at that moment. There has to be change, and those children got it. So God is holy and we aren't. We'd better change. So how does this change come about? Are we going to just think ourselves to be holier people, (coughs) kind of like the little engine that could? I think I can. I think I can, right? (coughs) Uh, Maybe more education. We're in a culture that really emphasizes education. We just need more education. Or or maybe psychotherapy. There's a lot of of psychotherapy out there. Maybe that'll bring change. Or maybe we need Congress. There's a lot of pushing now for Congress to change laws, right? Maybe we need Congress to get busy and pass some more laws, which, just as an aside, I'll say God's had gun control uh, under control from the beginning, hasn't he? (laughs) Thou shalt not murder. (laughs) So, how is change in our lives going to come about? That's where we get to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It says our salvation is a gift from God and not of our works, not anything we're doing. It says we're saved by grace through faith. Now, our prideful, sinful nature would like to boast, wouldn't it, about salvation? Uh. I was so cute. I was just so lovable. How could God avoid not saving me? But Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says no. No one's to boast. No one's to take credit for our salvation except God. I, I, I remember one of my humility verses. This thing keeps slipping down on me. I'm sorry. Uh, is First uh, Corinthians 4, 7. For who maketh thee to differ from another? Who maketh thee to differ from another? Not what, right? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now, if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hadst not received it? In other words, what are you all puffed up about with your salvation? You did nothing, right? We'd like to take credit for it, but we can't. In Ephesians 2, 1 and 5, God's word says, we're dead in our trespasses and sin. John MacArthur, you know him, uh, says, dead men don't do much. That's why he's a radio preacher. <laughs> we can't save ourselves. Right here, we could get snared in that molasses trap or tar pit or whatever you want to call it of free will and determinism and Calvinism and Arminianism and et ceteraism and and I'm not going to do that. Pastor Darren has said he's going to clear that all up next time. <laughs> so question is, do we do anything? Do we do nothing? Do we do everything? Does God do it all? I like A.W. Tozer's response to that whole controversy. Oh, Lord, thou knowest. That's a great response. Well, a couple of things we can certainly know that God has told us in his word is that we must repent. We must turn from our sins. As dead men, how do we even muster up the ability to do that? Well, here's what Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 11:19. Then I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within them and take the stony heart out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. God's been in the heart transplant business long before our hospitals, taking out that heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh. Well, how do we get that transplant? How do we get on the list? John 6, says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. All right. Next question then. How does God draw us? How does he call us? Romans 10, 17 answers that question and says, So then, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. All right. In 1 Peter 1, 23, the connection between being born again, which we've heard several times this morning, and God's word, that connection is made clear. In 1 Peter 1, 23, it says, Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, Through the Word of God, which lives and abides forever. So, if we've been born again, that will be evident in our lives, won't it? That that heart transplant. Now, let's look at some Bible truths about this concept of conversion, about change in the life of a believer. I heard Pastor Darren recently say, and I hope I heard you right, you know my hearing. That one of the most common questions he gets from people is, How do I know if I'm saved? I'm getting a yes, so I heard him correctly. <clears throat> if that is a question that should concern us, how do we know the answer? In 2 Corinthians 13 5, Paul gives us the answer. Paul says, Examine yourselves as to whether you're in the faith, test yourselves, he says. We're commanded by God to examine ourselves to see if there's a true conversion. Note that it doesn't say examine everybody else. We'd like to do that, wouldn't we? Would yeah, you see how he's acting? I don't think he's saved. That's one of our favorite things, isn't it? Uh, it's a lot more satisfying to do that. In fact, I've found uh, myself thinking, oh, how horrible that person's sin looks, right? Well, it's committed by me. You know, it looks horrible uh, when it's committed by someone else. When it's committed by us, it doesn't look so horrible, does it? We don't even recognize it. So we need to, as Paul says, take our eyes off of others and put them on ourselves. He says, test yourselves. So what's involved in this self-examination, this self-testing that we're supposed to do? How do we know whether, as he puts it, we're in the faith? One answer is the big idea for today uh, that is... uh, just a, it's, it's just a nightmare for my seventh grade English teacher, but it comes from an old country preacher, maybe a mythical country preacher, I picked this up from somebody else, but he's been quoted as saying, if you wa, <laughs> excuse me. if you is what you was, you ain't. If you is what you was, you ain't. Now there's the big idea, okay? So how do you know? Well, I think first thing we have to do is we have to look at what we was, right? Grammatically terrible. Uh, remember, from Ephesians 2, we were told that we're dead in our trespasses and sin. We're dead men. Well, let's look again at how dead men bring about change. One of the most encouraging and uplifting phrases in the Bible is the phrase, but God. In Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, we find there's hope for those that are dead in their trespasses and sins. It says, But God, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So the answer is, we aren't the ones changed ourselves from being dead to being alive. God's great love made us alive. That's what enables us to change. It's our new birth, that new heart that he's given us that gives us the ability to change. I think at every baptism, we probably have all heard 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away Behold, all things have become new, right? That's that newness of life. Concept of a man being a new man, of being born again, that's that concept of fancy theological word regeneration. Becoming a new man is a miracle of God. And why, you know, it's it's a creative work of God. Is it necessary to really see it as a miraculous, creative work of God? Absolutely it is. The reason is because that's uniquely God's domain. We hear about anybody else in Genesis creating anything? No, we don't. It reminds me of that old story about the scientist that said, I've created life from dirt, and there, God, take that, and God said, get your own dirt, you know. (laughs) (laughs) By recognizing that salvation is... The creative work of God, it does exactly what salvation was intended to do, to bring glory to God. As uh, one radio preacher says, uh, man is not the hero of the Bible. And that's the truth. As much as we'd like to make him the hero of the Bible, he's not. Ephesians 2.8.9 reminds us that our new birth is not of yourselves, but of It is the gift of God. God did it. It goes to his glory. So let's go back to the question, of: am I saved? We see the answer is in whether or not we're a new creation, right? If you're not a new creation, you're not saved. You're not in Christ. That brings up the question of, okay, how do we know if we're a new creation? Don't you hate lawyers? (laughs) Just never quit asking those questions. Going back to the test of the old country preacher, if you is what you was, you ain't. Okay? So we're back to that again. We have to look to the was again, the old man, the man before the rebirth, in order to compare it to what we is presently. What did he look like? Well, frankly, we all know we were dead spiritually, but Romans 1 gives us an extensive listing of the traits of the old man the man who scripture describes as having a heart of stone. Here are some of those attributes of the unsaved man from Romans 1. They'll probably sound familiar because, frankly, they described all of us before we were saved. They suppress the truth in righteousness. To put that in kind of modern-day terminology, God gives us the good news and we broadcast fake news. Although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God nor were they thankful, but became futile in their f- thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Boy, does that not describe the culture. They dishonored their bodies among themselves. I have children in here, but we adults know what that means. They exchanged the truth of God for the lie, more refusal to accept the good news. It's too hard on our pride. We'd rather believe a lie. They worship and serve the created rather than the creator. Worship and serve the created rather than creator. 1 John 2.15 says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. What's that mean? <laughs> you ain't saved. You're not converted. You still have that heart of stone. It says uh, further in Romans 1, They do things which are not fitting. And in case you have any doubt, About what that means, he gives us a laundry list of things that are not fitting. This is all about looking at the old man that we were. They're filled with unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, gossips, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, Undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. Wow. I'd say that's a list that just screams change. And that's just a partial listing of what a person is before God made them into a new creation. Okay, that's before. How about after? We could need to go back to Ephesians 2. Not 8 and 9 this time. Look at Ephesians 10. There it says, for we are his workmanship, reaffirming that we are the creative, unique work of God, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He created us for good works. It stands to reason, if we've been reborn, if we're a new creation, good works are going to show up right? We weren't just kind of driving down the road of life towards hell and suddenly decide to make a lane change and go to heaven, right? It's bigger than that. We're born again to do good works. Okay, I like that idea. I get to decide what the good works are. No, we just listen. (laughs) God just said, which God prepared beforehand, their works that God wants us to prepare to to has prepared for us that we should as it says walk in them. So, when Paul told us to examine yourselves to see if you're saved, he was telling us to see what works are present in our life. Pastor Darren told us just last Sunday that the resurrected Christ should be should change and govern every aspect of our life. That was convicting for me. I I'm sure those that were here heard that pastor exhorted us with the question, is the gospel a reality in your life? That penetrating question of the old preacher and our new preacher <laughs> focuses on this issue, the if you is part. Proverbs 23, 7 says with respect to us, for as he thinks in his heart, so is he, right? If you think in your heart, so is he. Tony Evans you know, might say, show me the is. Right? I, I could hear him saying that. I haven't heard him saying that. Warren Wiersbe put it this way. Christ-likeness is an outward expression of an inward condition. I love Adrian Rogers. <coughs> Adrian Rogers put it more colorfully when he said, what's down in the well will come up in the bucket. It's a good way of putting it? Isn't it? James put it best when he said, in James 2.20, faith without works is dead. James stresses that faith works together with works. Faith works together with works. And by works, he says, faith was made perfect. You know, if you think about a a fruit tree, a fruit tree is not there just to cast shade. A fruit tree is made perfect by its fruit. That's its purpose, that's its goal, to bear fruit. When Jesus was teaching on false teachers, he said in Matthew 7, 16 through 18, you will know them by their fruit. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs, from thistles? Verse 17, even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. Verse 18, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Well, it seems then we've come to a key test, kind of the fruit inspection, looking for good works. Unfortunately, we still have a problem. One preacher put it this way, painting the pump doesn't purify the water. Get that? Slapping a coat of paint on the outside, smiling while we're at church, doing a few good things here and there, doesn't purify the water, doesn't change the heart. Jesus, of course, put it more succinctly and with authority in Matthew 7:21 through 23. He said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Cast out demons in your name? And done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Good deeds with a bad heart is like that freshly painted pump spewing out putrid water. Jesus gives examples of people who do Good deeds, and they pray, and they fast. Gives examples of all three of those, but they're doing it so they can be seen publicly. Jesus addressed that practice when he said, in all three instances, at in Matthew 6, 2, and 5, Assuredly I say to you, they have their reward. Is that not bone chilling? That temporary moment of their glory for being out in public and doing those things, that's it, zero. These are the people he speaks to when he says, depart from me, I never knew you. But you might say, I thought in Matthew five sixteen it said, let your good works shine before men so they may see them. Let your, isn't that what we're supposed to do? Yes, but finish that verse. It says, so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven, right? That's what a fellow by the name of Oswald Chamber, one of Darren's old dead guys, says. uh, He says, that's the most delicate mission on earth, to do good works and cause the glory to be brought to God, not to you. And the only way that can be done is by being totally surrendered to and totally dependent upon the Holy Spirit. That's the fruit of the Spirit, not our fruit. It's the Holy Spirit's fruit. As Jesus said in John 15, 5, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. Pretty emphatic, isn't it? Something? Oh, surely something? Nothing. These good works that will help us examine ourselves, test ourselves, can't be superficial. And we know that, don't we? Come on. Yeah, I won't ask for a showing of hands, but I know people, we have been out busy with our hands doing good works and busy with a heart just full of resentment and grudge and bitterness and I wish I could get done with this and get on, Right? As 1 Corinthians 13, 3 reminds us, and though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned without love, it profits me nothing, right? So, if we can't rely on those outward good works, we're running out of things. What can we look for that are more reliable pieces of evidence of true conversion? And at this point, Pastor Dern's probably going, how do I pull the plug on this guy? Because this is a big subject, (laughs) and there's there's been books written on this, and I'm not going to get into that, except for one book that I know our pastor approves of. Uh, It was written by a fellow by the name of Don Whitney. Don Whitney, a former professor at Midwestern Theological Seminary, wrote a book entitled Ten Questions to Diagnose Your Spiritual Health. And no, I'm not going to go through all ten questions. I'm going to hit a few of them. But I would encourage you to get that book. If you're interested in doing what Paul commands us to do to examine ourselves, get that book and read through those ten questions. Spend some time in it. Let's just finish up by looking at at a few of these questions that will help us kind of get underneath that paint on the pump, okay? First question is, do you thirst for God? Everyone has probably heard or read Psalm 42, 1 and 2. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Gilbert, I know, has led us in that song, the the, the hymn based on that psalm. And when we sing those words, are we lying to God? Does your soul really pant for God? Or does it pant for the Chiefs game that's coming up in a few hours? Or maybe it pants for that car or truck that you've been eyeing or that room full of furniture or the happiness that lottery uh, winners uh, profess to achieve. Are there idols being worshipped instead of God? You know, just imagine with me for a moment a scene in Kansas City. Let's just say that Millions of believers are coming together at, say, Union Station in downtown Kansas City. And they're flocking in in such great crowds that they're having to park their cars on Interstate Highway 35. And that they're shutting the highways down and the streets down and the courthouses and the businesses in order to come and worship God. And there's someone there holding up a golden crown that's symbolic of, Of the one true King of Kings, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Would you be in that crowd or some other crowd? Does your heart, your soul pant after God? (coughs) Second question Are you increasingly governed by God's Word? Well, that's kind of two questions in one, isn't it? Because How can you know if you're governed by God's word if you're not in God's word? So the first question is, are you in God's word? Do you know what it says? If you don't know, then you can't can't make that determination. The Bible characterizes a believer as someone who loves God's word. Another familiar psalm is 119. We're not going to go all the way through it, but in 72... The psalmist says, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of coins of gold and silver. In verse 47, the psalmist says, and I will delight myself in your commandments, which I love. And in verse 97, the psalmist says, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Are you and I as faithful in studying God's word as we are at tuning in to our favorite TV show? How valuable is God's word to us? Do we delight in it? Do we love it and meditate on it? Do we look to his word to guide our decisions in life? Or do we, as Proverbs 3 says, rely on our own understanding? I think this thing is being broadcast. So my fellow lawyers are going to hate me for saying this. They're going to cringe when they hear me say it. But it ought to embarrass any Christian to be caught in a lawyer's office paying 300 bucks an hour to get a big old dose of man's wisdom when God has provided us with everything we need in his word. God gives us his wisdom for free, and it's all. it comes with all the benefits. Remember, in, in the book of James, God tells us that wisdom that descends... Not from above, okay, not from above, is devilish, sensual, and earthly. In other words, is straight out of hell. So we have two choices. I love the antithetical nature of Scripture, back and forth, black and white. We have two choices. The wisdom comes from above, the wisdom comes out of hell. Which do you want? God's wisdom, James tells us, is peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy. And good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Did you hear that good fruits part? If your life's being governed by God's word instead of Oprah or Dr. Phil or whoever, you'll see good fruits, true good fruits. That's evidence that you ain't what you was. Jesus told us clearly about the significance of whether our life is being governed by the word. In John 15, 21, Jesus said, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. We can invent all the excuses we want for not having our lives governed by God's word. But the corollary of what Jesus said is, If you're not keeping my commandments, you don't love me. The third and last question I'll ask from Dr. Whitney's book is: Do you delight in the bride of Christ? My wife helped me pick this one. This is a relation question, question, uh, question, a relational question, and frankly, as I thought about it, the first two were relational questions too because they're about our relationship with God, do we thirst for him, and are we increasingly governed by his word? So there's our relationship with God. Now we're going to look at what's your relationship with the bride of Christ, horizontally with one another. There's actually two parts to this question. Do we delight in the church as a whole? And secondly, do we delight in the individual members? I I didn't put this in my notes. I'm trying to remember. Somebody said, uh, I love humanity. It's people I can't stand. (laughs) Do we say that? I love the church. It's just the people I can't stand. Uh, Do we delight in in our gathering together as a church? Uh, Do we enjoy the experiences and labor of our church as a body? Do you find, as Dr. Whitney puts it, irresistible joy in the presence and ministry of Christ's people, both as a congregation and individually. How would, you de- how would you examine yourself to determine that? Would your presence in church gatherings be an indicator? Probably. I remember a severely disabled man. Uh, this is my experience, not somebody else. <laughs> they came to our church one time. and had been there for years because of his disability, and he was rolled up. They were giving him some award, and they rolled him up in a wheelchair. And with his broken voice, broken because of his disability, severe handicap, through his tears, he said, be at church every time the doors are open. He missed that. He yearned for it. He wanted to be here. He wanted the fellowship of other believers, the encouragement, and everything that came with it, and that handicap had deprived him of that, and he wanted us desperately to know, don't take it for granted. What takes priority over our attendance and involvement at church? Then also, how do we view our brothers and sisters in Christ? Do we gossip about them? Are we contentious and argue with them? Do we even secretly hate some of them? Those are alarming indicators if we do. 1 John 4.20 says, if a man says, I love God and hateth his brother, he's a liar. That's out of the book. That's not me. That's serious. One of the best tests for how we feel about our fellow saints, I think, is to review some of the Church preachers and others call the one anotherings of Scripture, where Scripture commands us to do this with one another, one another, one another. Let me just read through a a few of them. I'm not going to give you the references. If you want them, I've got them. Be kindly affectionate toward one another, share with one another, encourage, comfort, and strengthen one another. Do not judge or be a stumbling block to one another, edify, educate one another, accept one another. Pray for one another. Refresh one another. Comfort one another. Speak not evil of one another. Serve one another. Be kind, tender hearted, forgiving toward one another. And most of all, kind of the summation of all of this is have fervent love for one another. That list convicts me, particularly when I remember Jesus' words that if I love him, I'll keep his commandments. Those are commandments. Okay, let me conclude with this. If you're a little uncomfortable, (laughs) as I was, with your answers to a lot of these questions that I've raised, that's a good sign. That's a great sign. If you're convicted by some of these examples, that means you care. You desire to have your life lived out for the glory of God. That desire is evidence of that new heart, that heart of flesh rather than the heart of stone. One of the radio radio preachers says it's proof that our wanter has been changed, right? Your wanter, what you want, has been changed. We don't want the stuff we did before God made us a new creation. That conviction you may be feeling about self-examination and your spiritual condition should encourage you. If you're saved, the Holy Spirit indwells you and you will be reminded by the Holy Spirit and guided by the Holy Spirit, convicted by the Holy Spirit. Remember what Jesus called the Holy Spirit? He said, I will send you a helper. We're not alone. We have the divine example of Jesus Christ. We have his word, and we have the Holy Spirit. God has equipped us. He's given us everything we need. Even with all that God has given us, remember, we're not in this lifetime Going to attain perfection. John MacArthur says the Christian life is not about perfection, it's about direction. Are we headed towards Christ likeness? Yes, it may look like the stock market, but is there overall gain towards the ultimate goal of Christ likeness? I think that's a good summary of, of that journey. There may be some here today that are discouraged and thinking, I'm not sure I even have the desire to give my life for the glory of God. What a praise if that's your thought. You think, what? (laughs) God's already working in your heart if you're thinking that. If you're thinking, Lord, give me the desire to desire, that's great. He's working. Follow up on that. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So get in your word. Get in the Bible. Finally, there's some here today with a heart of stone. And maybe you're sitting there as I did before God changed me, and you're scoffing at all this God stuff. Somebody you care about may have dragged you here, and you're just tolerating this. Well, I want to plagiarize another statement. It's something that God said specifically for you, and it shows up in John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. God loves you. Now, to be consistent with everything I've said here this morning, I'm going to give you some words that are not my own. They come from a collection of prayers. I want to close in a prayer. And this is a prayer from a little book called The Valley of Vision. And it's a collection of Puritan prayers. There's a lot of these and thous in this thing. Please don't be put off by them. Prayer has, obviously, it's primarily... Vertical, going to the Lord, but it also has horizontal value. And so I I pray that as I read this prayer, uh, it will be our heartfelt message to the Lord and to one another. Let's pray. Sovereign God, thy cause, not my own, engages my heart. And I appeal to thee with greatest freedom to set up thy kingdom in every place where Satan reigns. Glorify thyself, and I shall rejoice, for to bring honor to thy name is my sole desire. I adore thee that thou art God, and long that others should know it, feel it, and rejoice in it. Oh, that all men might love and praise thee, that thou mightest have all glory from the intelligent world. Let sinners be brought to thee for thy dear name. To the eye of reason, everything respecting the conversion of others is as dark as midnight, but thou canst accomplish great things. The cause is thine, and it is to thy glory that men should be saved. Lord, use me as thou wilt. Do with me what thou wilt, but, oh, promote thy cause. Let thy kingdom come. Let thy blessed interest be advanced in this world. Oh, do thou bring in great numbers to Jesus. Let me see that glorious day and give me to grasp for multitudes of souls. Let me be willing to die to that end. And while I live, let me labor for thee to the utmost of my strength, spending my time profitably in this work, both in health and in weakness. It is thy cause and kingdom I long for, not my own. Oh, please, Lord, answer thou my request. It's in Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said